Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, coming to you from beautiful Malibu, California. Today, we have an amazing guest, Dr. Ken Berry. He has been practicing family medicine in rural Tennessee for over a decade. He's board certified in family medicine, was recently awarded the degree of fellow by the American Academy of Family Physicians, and he's seen over 20,000 patients of all ages over his career. One of his missions is to really turn the tide on the epidemic of the type 2 diabetes uh, situation going on in our country, and his new book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, will really shed light on a lot of this uninformed doctory business we have going on in this country, and people are kind of getting hurt by it. So it's always nice when a doctor exposes these things uh, to help other doctors really get back on board. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Neil. So uh, I guess I'll start off by telling everyone I, I sort of got an email from you at one point when you were thinking about writing this book because you had caught wind of mine and you did have a thyroid, you do have a thyroid section in the book. I guess I want to start off and say that the the first line of your book, I'd like you to touch on right away, which is the opening line is this book will upset many doctors. It may even upset your doctor. Why is that? Sure. Absolutely. Well, first, let me say that I did more than just catch wind of your book. I love your book. And, I, and there's not a day that goes by in the clinic that I don't recommend your book to at least one patient per clinic day. And I just wanted to get that out there. Oh, thank you. Well, also, I'm. it also speaks to the epidemic of thyroid problems that once a day you've got someone in there with a thyroid problem. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So many doctors in America today have gotten content, have gotten comfortable, and are content to let the American Heart Association and the American Diabetic Association dictate to them how they will practice medicine. And you know as well as I do that many of the recommendations from these these sort of um, august bodies of stored learning are ridiculous, and they lead directly to disease, and morbidity, and mortality. And so when I was early in my career, I didn't realize that. I was just blindly following along like everyone else does. And But as I went through my practice, I kept seeing these red flags here and there going, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. And so eventually, I really sat down and started studying this stuff and was amazed to find that very, very often the the recommendations that are handed to doctors from their medical board or from their medical association or from the AHA or the ADA are not backed by any research whatsoever. And so when this book comes out and when people start reading this and, and asking their doctor, hey, you told me this, but this guy said this and he's got research to back it up. Do you have any research? It's probably going to upset that doctor. <laughs> um. Hey, I'm I'm in the game of upsetting doctors. That was uh, my I spent ten years pissing off doctors. But oh, it, what's, what's great about what you're doing, and I want to ask you this question. So, when you were in medical school, you know, I'm sure that it was exciting and fun, right? Like, oh yeah, getting into it. And then at some point, like you said, they become content, right? But I don't look at it as content. I look at it like it's they they've stopped learning. 
Yes. And these doctors have just so, so if they got their degree 30 years ago, they go, well, how could I not have learned everything I needed to learn in 10 years at Harvard and spend my money? And, and you're, and then you and other doctors like Forsman and other people we know are in practice going, well, hold on a minute though. I'm in the practice of medicine. I'm seeing patients and they keep getting this medication. They're not getting better. So I need to look further for them. But what is going on with the doctors and their egos where they won't go, they just look at the patient and go, well, you're wrong. I'm right. Not, hmm, why aren't they getting tipped off? Why aren't they seeing the red flags? Or are they seeing them and they're too worried about the fact that they don't know what it means, so they're scared to admit it? Well, it, it's a lot of things. It's it's everything you touched on and more. Um, you may have heard the story of the doctor back in the, the 1700s, I think, who uh, there was something called childbed fever. And when a woman had a baby, she was had about a 25 to 45% chance of dying after childbirth from some sort of disease where she would get sick, she would have a fever, and she would die. And no one could figure out what it was. And so this doctor said, you know, maybe we should start washing our hands between one delivery and the next. Now, that doesn't cost any money, Right. It's very, very simple. To, it's simple to do. It, and I'm sure no one back then had written a paper saying you definitely should not wash your hands. So he wasn't really stepping on anyone's toes. But he was a younger doctor. He wasn't, an, you know, the, the guy with the long coat dragging the ground. He was a younger doctor. So I'm sure that offended the older doctors. But he was literally ran completely out of practice even though he was absolutely correct. And that sort of scenario has repeated itself through Western medicine from his story, and I'm sure there are stories before his, but multiple, multiple times. So there was a doctor, Dr. Bernstein, who, who was recommending for decades that diabetics should be able to check their own blood sugar. But no company in America would make a, bl- a glucometer, which, you know, everybody has one now. But back in the day, it wasn't until 1980, after he had been harping on the medical community and the manufacturers for over 20 years, did they finally give in and say, fine, we'll, make, we'll let patients do this. Because doctors were afraid that they would lose visits. They were afraid that patients would harm themselves. I'm sure some thought that. But, you know, who knows their motivation? But it's like that now, that is, it's such a common sense tool to have. It would be ridiculous not to offer that to a diabetic, but they literally fought against him for two decades to keep that tool out of the hands of patients. And so that sort of story repeats itself over and over in modern medicine, and I think it just goes back to human nature. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told that we're wrong, and I think we don't also definitely don't like being, being told that, hey, dude, you know the stuff you've been saying for the last 30 years? You've been wrong about all that. You, you're completely wrong about all that. You, and so then, because you understand, then there's this guilt like crap. I've probably killed people with this stupid advice that I've been giving. And I have, I've got a YouTube channel and I've apologized to the public more than once for the advice that I gave during the first half of my medical career because I was an unlearned idiot when it comes to med. I didn't know as far as nutrition, prevention, diet, I had no clue. All I was, I was just parroting the things that I had been taught. And I thought, well, you know, my God, it was a state medical school. How could they be wrong? Well, they were completely wrong. And I was completely wrong. And I probably contributed to morbidity and mortality in some of my patients with my ignorant advice. 
I think it's amazing that you're willing to come out and fall on your sword like that, like some other people out there who've even written whole books that are wrong and then have to come out and go, uh, as totally BS book. Sorry, it was 30 years mm-hmm. ago. I think it's really wonderful because let's go back to that guy with the hand washing. Uh, he just saved millions of lives. Exactly. With, with millions a step of lives. up. Yeah, with, with, you know, an innovative idea. Let, and I guess that goes back to, right, what he did was the, quote, practice of medicine. He's practiced, right? Exactly it's not right. already definitively defined. And like you said, you were just, you just go by what you were taught. You guys had what, like half an hour of nutrition and it was all probably like uh, the probably, I, I'm assuming the title of that chapter was like glucose is what the body needs, <laughs> right? Well, and uh, actually there is a couple of chapters in the book about that. And I actually reference when I was like, when I, when I had this self-awareness of, uh, dude, you know nothing about nutrition at all. And so I went back and I was in the attic digging through my medical school stuff and I was pulling out my pathophys and my, my cell and molecular and I was looking for my nutrition and I couldn't really remember the book or the notes and I finally found them and I, and I'm sure your listeners are thinking, well, I bet there's this huge stack of, you know, tomes and, and just huge epistles and notes and notes and notes. I could hold the entirety of my nutrition education easily between two fingers dangling like literally maybe four ounces of paper there was a small paperback book and i don't know maybe six weeks of notes and it was all taught by this new zealander who i'm sure has now passed away so i'll try to be respectful but the only thing i remember about him was the funny way he said pasta he said pasta (laughs) and he he was a he was a brittle diabetic and he spent hours telling us how he ate all these servings of whole wheat pasta to control his blood sugar. Oh boy! And I, I hear, you can see me on in the back row because I was always on the back row, writing this down furiously: whole wheat pasta for brittle diabetes. You know, and so <laughs> that's the exact wrong thing to tell any diabetic, especially somebody who's having trouble with control, is eat more whole wheat pasta. Well, I'd love to hear like how what was his theory? Like where was his evidence? Like I don't, you know what I mean? Like well, what? <laughs> absolutely. I would love to go back and pick his brain now, but. That's what I want everyone to understand is you got to give doctors a little slack because literally at, at that point, if I had raised my hand and say, could you please point me to the research? And, and I want to want you to lay out your line of reasoning why the pasta helps your diabetes control. Could you could you get that for me? I mean, there would have been a deafening silence and I would have probably I don't even know. I would have probably just been vaporized by some beam or something. I don't even know what would have happened. But well, you well, just maybe he got a free golf school. trip from like the grain company and that's <laughs> who knows, who knows. Yeah. But you just don't ask questions like that in med school. I mean, the 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 social pressure is just unimaginable because first of all, you're just happy to be there. Right. And secondly, you don't know that, you know, they, they kind of teach you the first misstep and you're gone. And so you're literally just trying not to mess up. And so you sure don't want to make a professor mad. So you never question. You just write down, you just write it down and move on. Right. No, it's so fascinating. What I have, I mean, clearly one of the reasons, the statement of you should never go to a doctor unless they know about nutrition. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. But Part of why I see that as valuable is obviously because, as you know, and I'd love you to touch more on this concept, there's more than just to weight loss and health and cholesterol, right? Like how you eat informs so many other things. So tell us, like, why should no one ever go to a doctor who doesn't understand current, up-to-date, nutritional, you know, principles? 
Well, it, it all boils back down to a very, very basic concept, kind of a first grade concept. Your body is literally built of what you've eaten. There's no magic. There's there's no magic thing that happens that you somehow are in existence not based on what you've eaten. You are literally composed of what you've eaten over the last two years. Some of your tissues turn over every two weeks. Some of your tissues turn over every few months. But literally the skin you're in today, L, is a brand new skin from six weeks ago. Every cell in your skin has been replaced over the last six to eight weeks. And so therefore to say, well, you don't need to know anything about nutrition because something magic happens after you put the Twinkies in your mouth, magic happens, and then you have a perfect body. That doesn't even make logical sense. And so in, nutri- in, in medical school, nutrition, words like nutrition, words like health, words like uh, prevention, if it doesn't involve a, a diagnostic test that you can bill for, those words just aren't spoken of. We don't talk about them. They're, they're not brought up. It's funny you said Twinkies, because if we go back in time, Twinkies was a murder defense for the guy that killed Harvey Milk mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was That's a murder right. defense. <laughs> yeah. It was, I, I so ate many so Twinkies. many Twinkies. Yeah, yeah what was it? Yeah. I ate so many Twinkies, I went insane. I went insane and killed a guy. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, hmm, that's not really an advertisement for that. Um, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and- I think it's amazing you went on YouTube and apologized and, you know, are, are being open and honest to know that. And, you know, I think here's the thing. What we all want is, if you don't know, please help me. Help me get to the bottom of it. You're an MD. You're going to be able to look at I'm, You know, I, don't, I got a philosophy degree here. You know, I need someone like mm-hmm. you, Dr. Forsman, who can go and understand how to look at research and look at, you know, variables of which I don't know. Exactly. So you want your doctor to be like interested in finding the answer, you know, and I think it speaks to you and Dr. Forsman, some other great functional practitioners out there, even Evan Brand or Chris Kresser, who are, let's look at the root. Let's really find out what's up. And I'm going to help you solve this uh, because a lot of times, you know, doctors go to, we go to doctors and you just feel so patronized and you feel, you walk out of there and you just feel like they're not going to help me. Right. They're not going to look into this. Exactly. You know? And that's, or they, or you hand them a book and they won't even look at it. Or I brought a book in, I had, you know, when I was having problems and I said, listen, I'm on T3. Could you please just take a look? Even if you flip through this book or looked at the website, because I really need to work with someone. She just looked right at me. She goes, I tell you right now, I'm not going to read that book. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and that's actually, and I get that, but also like, there needs to be a test. There needs to be a list of things, how you can tell if you're talking to a doctor who's going to listen and who's going to work with you and who's going to be your learning partner and not be your health dictator. And one of the things I tell people are, is take, bring your notes to me. If you've seen something on the internet, print it off. If you've seen something on, on uh, Mark's Daily Apple, print it out, bring it to me. Let's look at it. But if a doctor gets flustered or irritated because you brought some printouts or handouts to the visit with you, then you probably need to find another doctor. That's a huge red flag that he has no interest in what you have to say or what you think, even though it is your symptoms and it is your one life we're going to talk about. He has no interest in your input. And that's a huge red flag. Yeah. And by the way, this isn't even just men doctors. You'd think, oh, maybe female doctors are more sensitive. Nope. Nope. It happens there too. I've even seen worse behavior from female endocrinologists Mm -hmm. and stuff. So this is just across the board. It's an ego thing. 
And I agree with you. I always tell people that if your doctor's not listening to you or they're not willing to maybe learn or admit they might not know something, then you run from that doctor. Just run. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, or like I say, use them for the blood work with your insurance and then take the blood work elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that that doctor's bad or mean or evil. There's no conspiracy. There's none of that stuff. It's just that he's comfortable, he's lazy, and he's gotten arrogant. He or she and and they're just they've gotten arrogant and complacent and they it's just too much effort to put their thinking cap on and listen to what you actually have to say or to what you found because obviously you wouldn't be wasting a doctor's time if what you found you didn't think was important so obviously you think it's important but yet they're not even going to take the time to listen to it yeah you need to let your feet make that decision and go somewhere else right let's talk about something people bring up often which is the idea of if you're a doctor, you shouldn't be fat, period, end of story, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, yeah. if you said that to most people, they go, uh, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So to, let's so, talk about that. Let's I, talk yeah, about that. Sounds great. So when I was a, a small boy growing up, my, I was uh, raised by my grandparents and my grandfather was a very simple man, very plain spoken, not, not very well educated. And he would say, boy, you don't lead by your words. You lead by your example. And he said that to me a million times, and I'm like, I don't know, okay, whatever, granddad. But so that really stuck into my psyche. Like, literally, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I haven't tried or that I don't do. That's just not my style. And so when I got out of residency, started my practice, and got into my 30s a little bit, I looked down one day, and I was fat. I like how it was just one day you looked down, and you're like, oh, today I'm suddenly fat. <laughs> I, I ate that Twinkie and something. Magic happened, and I was fat. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. But yeah, over the, over the course of a couple of years, I gained about 60 pounds. And I was getting short of breath trying to tie my shoes. And so I guess a lot of doctors are like, hmm, I got fat. Oh, well, whatever. But in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so you're telling me. I'm going to be that doctor that's going to walk into this exam room and proceed to tell this patient they need to lose some weight. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not doing that. That's not, I'm not going to do that. That's just not my style. And so I thought, well, I'm going to fix this, right? And so I, I, I started doing everything I was taught in my medical school and residency, nutrition education. I started eating more whole grains. I cut all the fat out of my diet. I started eating tons of starchy grains and vegetables. And then I, and I started jogging. And I gained 10 pounds. I, I, I love that. Our audience will understand that. People who understand paleo primal will go, you were on the worst <laughs> paradigm ever for weight loss. Yeah. Uh, literally, literally, I was upside down and backwards. And then, so you can imagine, here's a guy I'm supposed to know it all, right? Obviously, what I, what I thought I knew was completely wrong. And so I'm like, hmm. So I basically went back to school on a personal level and just did all the research I could on nutrition and on prevention and like, what the heck, what am I supposed to eat? And so I happened upon the, one of the very early copies of the Primal Blueprint and basically memorized that book and then a few more in the, in the Primal Paleo kind of genre. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. The whole ancestral diet thing, that makes perfect sense. My DNA has been eating this for 99.99% of existence. But only in the last few hundred years have we been eating all this whole wheat pasta and crap like that. So maybe that's not what I should do. So I started the, the Paleo Primal Ancestral Diet Plan and immediately lost the weight. Uh, and I was, uh, I forgot to tell you, my hemoglobin A1C, I was becoming diabetic. Yeah. What was, was your hemoglobin A1C fast, when, you, when it was bad? Oh, it was up to, it was up to 5.9. Mm -hmm. I was 5.7. So you know, I've been there. 
which to the average doctor, he would say, oh, oh that's not bad. We'll just watch that. But I was like, uh-uh, no, that's not going to happen. So <clears throat> my current... Okay, I want to stop and highlight that. Let's yes. highlight okay, that for let's everyone. Do that. I don't know if you agree, but, but, but Dr. Forsman had said one time on a podcast, he said, no matter what anything online tells you, you want below 5.2 or below. Absolutely. And here's why. It's very simple. Anytime your blood sugar is above 140-ish, you are doing permanent, permanent damage to every organ in your body, period. Then you won't find anyone who will debate that. If it's above 130, 140, you're doing permanent damage that can never be taken back. So, and but yet every day doctors will tell people with a hemoglobin A1C of 5.9 or 6.1 or 6.4, well, that's not too bad. We'll just, we'll watch that and you just keep doing what you're doing and we'll check it again in six months. So for the next six months, they're doing permanent damage that can never be taken back. How does that make any sense at all? It, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to me. It makes no sense to me. And that's why if, if, if my patient's A1C is above by five, they're going to they're gonna get a phone call. And if it's above six two, six three, they're coming for an office visit. And we're going to have a heart-to-heart in which I'm going to try, seriously try to scare the crap out of them. Good. Like, dude, you gotta, you got to tighten this up. This is terrible. Right. And I've had multiple patients say, but my last doctor said that wasn't bad. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but I'm telling you. Yeah, well, and also, how you feeling, buddy? How you looking? How you feeling? No, no one in that environment feels great. But I want to go back to the fat doctor thing. So I guess it would depend on how fat and hear me out because there are a lot of skinny inflamed diabetics too. Absolutely. There's a lot of fit athletes that look ripped and awesome and they are on their way to diabetes and don't even know it. So I guess at the end of the day, I mean, seriously, if you're, if you've got a doctor that's obese, okay. Um, but not that you should, not that your doctor needs to be a triathlete either or have Marxist and abs. Um, so I think there's a, there's a middle ground and also too, it really depends on the person's blood work as well, right? Triglycerides are triglycerides and it doesn't matter how skinny you are or right. I mean, so what are your thoughts there? But we, we can't, we can't be, uh, misled at all. There are skinny type two diabetics that does happen. And there are multiple skinny type one diabetics, but on average, almost without exception, if you're a type 2 diabetic, you're overweight. And so back to the fat doctor reasoning. So here, let's just talk about the average doctor. First of all, you can't accuse your doctor of being lazy, at least least not initially, because to pre-med and med school are two of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Okay. I mean, I literally worked anywhere from 16 to 23 and a half hours every day Sometimes I would I would work for days without sleep. And so you can't accuse me of being lazy. You can't say, oh, well, he never tries. He doesn't know. No, I'm very dedicated. I'm, I'm very put my nose down and go after it. Every doctor has to be a hard worker or they wouldn't have made it into medical school and they definitely wouldn't have made it out of medical school. So by definition, every doctor, you know, at least was a hard worker at one time. Good point. That's number one. Number two, doctors know everything about human health and nutrition, right? That's just common knowledge. Everyone knows that. They do. So if you've got a guy who's a, proven himself to be a hard worker and dedicated, right, but he's also a doctor, so he knows everything about human health and nutrition, <clears throat> then you've got fact three, he's overweight. Wait a minute. How does that even make sense? He's got the ability and he's got the knowledge, but he's overweight. 
So either he's lazy, which we've already proven he's not, or he couldn't have gotten through medical school, or his knowledge is incorrect. He's uninformed. Yeah, he's ignorant of the facts about human nutrition. And that's how I was. I was ignorant of true human nutrition and what it should be and what it should not be. And I had to go back and teach myself. And like you said earlier, that's why they call it practice, because you you never know everything. And to even pretend or imply that you do, I think is malpractice, but most doctors do it on a daily basis. But yeah, if, if you got a fat doctor, then he doesn't know he doesn't know his facts about nutrition yet, but it's never too late. That's again, why we call it practice because you can always turn your boat around and go in the other direction, but it's going to take patients like you. Cause I'm sure you've woken a couple of doctors up in your patient career by saying, Hey dude, look, here's look at this study and this study and this study. They might not have wanted to look at that study with you face to face, but I guarantee you later that evening or the next day, he's like, what, what that what crazy me say? What job yeah. talking about? Let me look at yeah. this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let me look at this. And then they're like, huh, I've never seen this before. And maybe, just maybe you woke a doctor or two up and you don't even realize it. Yeah, well, and also let's just say that there's a difference between, I mean, there's people that are disciplined in other areas or not. Like there's some people that are extremely disciplined with like their finances, with everything, but then like cannot make it to the gym, right? So I guess we all have that. But here's where I feel like any kind of, quote, lazy excuse would is that use you know this i mean really 80 percent of your body composition is mouth to anus right so i tell people like if you want to get fat adapted you can actually do it on the couch you can be ob all you have to do is exude the willpower mentally for a while until you get fat adapted that requires no gym not lifting a finger but it does require a level of mental discipline and willpower for a particular period of time until you're past that carb dependency threshold yeah. right so you know what i mean and, and the knowledge to know how to do that's it to true. start with that's true you have to have the knowledge up front that must have, that must have, what other effects, either that, okay, you lost the weight, you, you adopt this new paradigm that I'm sure for, right, your life up until then, you were eating the other way, because that's why you put on that extra 60 pounds. Absolutely. So what were the revelations and other things you noticed about your own health that happened over time? Well, for all, for, for all of my teens and 20s and a good part of my 30s until I made this paradigm shift, I had terrible um, acne. I had terrible dandruff. I had uh, chronic heartburn. I, I just was just a mess. Okay. And so when I made this change, one day I thought, you know, I haven't had heartburn in a while. <laughs> That's weird. And because I was still learning at that time, I by no means was any kind of, you know, human nutrition expert at that time. I was just learning, but I just kept noticing, you know, my acne has been way better lately. I don't hardly have any acne at all. That's weird. You know, and then I would be like, well, I'm out of head and shoulders. Oh, my God, that used to would have been a, a, a level one emergency. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> you know, but then so I was like, I haven't had head and shoulders for a couple of months and my, my hair's fine. I don't have any flakes. That's weird. And I kept noticing these weird things that kept happening to my body, which they were all good, by the way. And I finally made the, the mental leap. That's all because of my diet, isn't it? This diet change that I've made has literally revamped my body. And another thing that I've noticed is that I can stay out in the sun much longer now than I could before. That's interesting. A lot of people say that. Absolutely. Yeah. And when I used to get it before on the old diet, when I'd get a sunburn, it was literal agony for five days. It was terrible. And I'm sure that I was doing damage to my skin because of what my skin was made of back then. 
but now keto paleo primal I, I just don't I, – I can stay in the sun twice as long, and if I do get a sunburn, it's pink for a day or two, and it's gone, and it's not a big issue. Fascinating. Uh, personal TMI question. Did you notice any difference in sex drive? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, before I was getting to be uh, Al Bundy-ish, where I just wanted to <laughs> sit on the couch and watch TV, and I didn't really – you know, I was, I was tired. I was tired all the time. I was bloated all the time. I really wasn't in the mood a lot of the time. And yeah, now it's a different world now. Let's just say that. How about that? No, no, yeah, no, it's great. And we hear that often too. And I just like men and other people as well to hear that. It, it happens both ways with both genders and a lot of really wonderful benefits because of the hormone balancing and optimization of testosterone and everything else. Um, I'm curious, Absolutely. did you, you know, I know doctors are often really bad at like, you know, getting their own blood work done, but do did you see a difference in your own blood work? Like, or did you have that to even compare? And can you tell us about some of those positives? Yeah, ever since I've been in practice, I've checked my blood work every six months to every three months, just depending on what I'm doing. Because like I told you earlier, I always try stuff on myself before I ever even think of suggesting it to a patient. And and yeah, my hemoglobin A1C has went from, it was a, almost a six, it's down to very low fives or high fours. My triglycerides, I think at the worst, were, were 280, 320, somewhere in that area. And now Oof. they're like, I don't know, 84, something like that. They're ridiculously yeah. low. Uh, my LDL and HDL ratios corrected. I'm not even going to talk about my total cholesterol because I don't give a crap about that because I think it's a meaningless number. Um, multiple other things just went in the right direction. My inflammatory markers went from chronically just a little bit high, which I believe is an indicator of that permanent damage that you can't take back. I talked about earlier. I think the, the chronic inflammatory markers, that's what they're telling you is, hey, dude, there's smoldering fires around here somewhere. You better find them and put them out. They're all normal now. All my inflammatory markers are stone cold normal. That's amazing. I mean, you, it's, it's amazing because you, you can see it, you feel it, but you can also literally see how it improves blood work. Can you touch on, I want to just, one of the things for people that don't know maybe who are listening, in the new paradigm of understanding nutrition, there is a new paradigm of looking at lipid panels, which is why you said you don't even give a crap about the total cholesterol, right? So I just want to, and you know, Jimmy Moore's written books on this, but I just want to impart on the audience that you need a doctor who understands the new way of looking at it. Is that the right way to put it? And can you just kind of give us a little bit of a synopsis without, you know, having to go into the nitty gritty? So first of all, you don't, you really, uh, I, I, I uh, a lipid panel, that's what the old way of looking at that would be called. And triglycerides are included in the old lipid panel. And right off the bat, that tells you that somebody wasn't thinking straight because, you know, you and I both know that, that fats don't raise your triglycerides, sugars and starches do. But somehow that wound up in the lipid panel profile. And many a person has been put on lipid torn core because of their high triglycerides, even though that is just, I don't even know what to say about that. But anyway, so what you want your doctor to check is a, is an NMR, NMR uh, lipo profile or lipid profile like that, where they look at all the subparticles and the different fractions, and you can actually glean some meaningful information from that sort of a study. And there are, there are guys who go into great detail about that study in their book. Uh, I think Jimmy Moore does a great job of that in one of his books. But cholesterol clarity, I think it is. Yes, yes, yes. His new one. That's exactly right. But if your doctor just says, hey, now, listen, your your total cholesterol is high. We're going to start you on this pill. 
that's a flag. That's a red flag. Right. He's looking at the old stuff. And it's literally when you dig into that, and I actually have a chapter on the book, the entire fat theory of disease and the lipid theory of heart disease were based on complete and utterly fabricated research. All of it was the, the entire base of it. The seven country study, which if anybody's done much reading on medical medical history, know he did he did research in 22 countries, but he only published the research from seven countries. And the reason he didn't put the other countries in is because they showed that he was wrong. Mm. Okay, selective that, research. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dr. Ansel Keys, and he was a big deal back in the day, and people really thought that he was the guy. And so he he was a vegan or a vegetarian, and he wanted that to be true so bad that he left out, what, 13, 14 countries and just said, we're going to publish the data from these seven because they show that eating too much meat is bad and it's got to be the fat. And that's what the entire last 60 years has been about, was that study. Right. Which has now been proven to he completely doctored his data. Now, I wonder if you can give everyone a snapshot of this, because this would be a really great soundbite for people that need to share this with people suffering with like cholesterol issues and the threat of going on statins. So I remember back in the day, I had a friend who had really high cholesterol. They were a runner and they were slim, but they had terrible, quote, terrible cholesterol, right? And then they were like, I don't know. I don't want to stop eating cheese. So I want to go on the statin. And I remember being like, what are you doing? And... I guess here's the thing. So many people who are fat and overweight with terrible, quote, well, even if they're actually truly terrible cholesterol, you know, lipid panels, um, when they go primal and paleo, that completely gets fixed. But here's the thing. People would say, well, how could high fat, right, this higher fat paradigm versus the lower fat one be the one that helps with the lipid panel. It is totally backwards from what we think. So if you could just wrap people's heads around that concept. Sure. So first of all, the runner with the bad cholesterol, more than likely what's bad on him is his triglycerides. And it's very common for somebody slender who's eating a ton of whole grains because they think that's really going to help them with their endurance. They'll have a, a sky high triglyceride level. And that's from the starches and the sugars. It has nothing because they're like, dude, I don't ever eat. I never eat bacon. I throw out the egg yolks. I have an egg white omelet. How can my cholesterol, and by cholesterol, they mean triglycerides, how can that be bad? And that's why, because it has nothing to do with eating fat. It's, it, I mean, that's proven science. Anybody who's read this about it at all knows that to be a fact. And so the, the soundbite is eating fat does not make you fat. And it, I almost wish that everybody would stop calling the adipose tissue on the human body fat because it confuses people because it sounds right. You know, eat fat, get fat. That kind of makes common sense. But it's absolutely untrue. What makes you fat is sugars and starches, right? That's right. So so a high-fat diet in the presence of a high-carbohydrate sugar diet, yeah, you're headed yeah. for disasters oh, and yeah. you're headed absolutely. for clogging because your body's so busy responding to the threat of this glucose that it's not dealing with that. Maybe that's the way to look at it. And then when you take that away, your body then is not only switched over to being fueled primarily that way, but it has like the ability, I guess this is the way I look at it as a non-doctor, it finally has the time and the wherewithal to deal and process and use that fat as energy because it's not dealing with the threat over here. Is that exactly. a right? Way to look yeah, at it. absolutely. And I think uh, another guy, uh, Jason Fung, a nephrologist, he did a great job of explaining it. He's great. But basically, you can burn either sugars and starches or you can burn fats. Now, anybody who's overweight, what do they want to burn? 
They want to burn fat, of course. They want to burn that fat off, and that's how you get rid of fat is you have to burn it off. And even burn, is that's a, a very uh, incorrect term, but that's how we all talk about it, so we have to use these words. But if you – I mean just think of the lunacy of telling somebody, okay, you want to burn off all this fat, so you need to eat a bunch more carbs. That's how you – but wait. Aren't, no, because they're going to they're gonna burn the carbs. They're not going to touch the fat because you're giving them all these carbs to burn. So when you tell people eat multiple servings of whole grain, eat lots of fruit, you're, they'll never burn an ounce of fat doing that. They could literally live on the treadmill going full speed and they'll never lose an ounce of fat because you're, you're, they're burning carbs. You have to become fat adapted. You have to remind your body, hey, remember you, you can burn fat too. You can burn ketones. You don't have to burn just sugars. You can burn fat as well, and you can use that as energy, and it's actually more efficient to do so. And once you fat adapt your body and remind your body that it's capable of doing that, it's happy to do that, and it actually works better doing that. And then the weight loss, the weight loss starts to happen because you're actually burning your own fat, which is the whole goal of weight loss anyway. Right. And that goes into something you mentioned in your book, which is, and we're going to get into more of that in a minute, but you mentioned a phrase, honor your mitochondria. You know, mitochondria has been a, a word we've been throwing around. Look, I've had mitochondrial dysfunction myself, years of hypotenuse and then inflammation and, you know, insulin resistance. And it takes a while, but you can work on building and growing and making that mitochondria really perform at top levels. And that's what we want to do. I think um, if there's a way you can explain this in a fourth grade term to us, what mitochondria is and and what happens to it when you are like fat and overbeast and then, you know, how we can turn things like that around. So the mitochondria are just a fascinating organelle that, that are in every uh, cell of the human body. They are, we call them the powerhouses. And there's there's this huge disagreement in evolutionary medicine were they a bacteria that we captured sometime in the distant past and made an organelle because they have their own DNA, which is weird. They have their uh, they have their own they can basically live on their own, but yet they're inside of our cells and they provide all this energy. And you can kind of say it's they're analogous to the chloroplasts that are in plant cells that use sunlight to turn turn into energy. They take our what we eat and turn it into energy to help power the cell. Without the mitochondria, the human body could not exist. It just it, there wouldn't be enough energy to make it run. We would still be tiny little multicellular, but we'd be tiny. We couldn't be these humongous conglomerations of trillions of cells. It just wouldn't happen. And so, when you feed the mitochondria sugar, starches, whole grains, that sort of thing, but you do two things. First of all, you decrease the total number of mitochondria per cell, which is a very, very bad thing. That's a harbinger of future mitochondrial disease. And there's a, a just a, 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 an exploding arm of, of science and research and medicine, and it should be even bigger than it is, studying the mitochondria and all the diseases that come from mitochondrial dysfunction. As you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's, everything's affected by the mitochondria. Basically, every disease is mitochondrial disease, at least at some point. And so, but if you're feeding your mitochondria an ancestral diet that they actually know what to do with and are able to, to optimize themselves on, you get a higher number of mitochondria per cell, which is just going to make you have more energy. And you can see these people who are eating the whole grain sugar starch diet, they just look like they want to lie down all the time. <laughs> Hey man, when I was a, a sugar burner, I I mean, I'd have a meal and it'd be like instant nap. 
time for a nap. That's right. I can't wait to get home and get into the lazy boy. That that's what that's what mitochondrial dysfunction sounds like. That's what it is. And, you know, there are inborn errors of metabolism and mitochondrial dysfunction that kids can have. But I'm talking about just the normal guy who considers himself healthy. He has mitochondrial dysfunction to at least to some extent if he's eating the standard American diet. You know, I want to touch on one more thing before I want to get into some other aspects of your book, because it's great. You know, you really go through like, here's the lie, you know, here's the book, here's the references, here's the, you know, you just kind of take it piece by piece with major, you know, medical subjects. So everyone can get a taste of, you know, how much they've been bullshit by doctors. Um, But I want to talk about type two diabetes. You know, it's just, it's just killing me to see every single commercial on television for everything that has to do with blood glucose management. And I, I I just, it's, we know, you and I both know that if you're a type 2 diabetic, that you likely can reverse that. I mean, maybe I guess it depends on how long you've been on insulin, but you can reverse that. Obviously, don't do it at home. Like, work with a doctor like Ken. But can you please get out that message? Because here's the thing. It's almost like with thyroid. I had this discussion with Mark where... If you're taking T3 only and it's the direct, right, because you're not converting it from T4, you can run into problems with some mismanagement, right? Because I'm a human being. I don't know what I cellularly need as far as T3 goes on any leaven, so you can overshoot it or undershoot it. Whereas if you have T4 converting for you properly, it will kind of do it for you, right? It's the smart one in there that's got it figured out. So I look at insulin the same way. Some diabetic can go, well, I don't want to stop eating this crap, so I'll just go on insulin. But that is like, to me, the dumbest thing in the world because... Because you are now headed for way future problems because of the potential mismanagement of that insulin. Does that make sense? And could you wrap our heads around this? Because people need to know there's an out and and they should use that out and not use the insulin as a crutch. So absolutely. So first of all, everybody needs to understand that the human body is very intelligent. Whether you believe in intelligent design or you believe in millions of years of evolution, the human body is smarter than any doctor. It does things that to this day we yet don't understand how it does it or why it does it or how that works. And no, you know, no researcher or doctor will admit that except me. But there are things that happen in the human body. We still don't have any clue why they happen. Why? Why does it happen that way? And so. With type 2 diabetes, and we always have to make the distinction, with type 2 diabetes, let me be clear, there's no magic. We, a lot of doctors act like, I don't know why you got type 2 diabetes. I don't know. We'll just put you on these pills and here's a shot. And I don't know, but just keep doing what you're doing and we'll check that A1C in six months. That's complete and utter bunk. And that's why I chose to use the word lies on the cover of the book instead of myths or something like that, as a doctor should know better. And when, you, when you're licensed and you should know better, then when you say some bull crap, that's not just, you know, your hairdresser telling you. That's somebody who's supposed to know. And that's what, in my mind, makes it a, a medical legal lie because you should have known better and you didn't. And now you've harmed this patient. But with type 2 diabetes, let's be very clear, it is a disease of nutrition. It's not, it's not genetic. It's not, uh, we don't know. It's not magical. It is nutrition. The, and I tell my patients every day, the bad news, bad news is, is you have type 2 diabetes. The ba- other bad news is you did it yourself. The good news is you can fix it. I want to I stop there. So I make this point a lot. 
everybody who has type 2 diabetes gave it to themselves, unbeknownst to them, perhaps. I mean, it, it, some of it's unbeknownst because there are, like I said, you know, there's athletes that are fit and, and they're uh, edging towards it because they didn't know better either. But everybody does self-inflict it, whether you know it or not. You could be eating a pie every day and you kind of know you're headed there. Sure, there's those people that kind of are more aware of it. But you can also do it by, like you said, you were on the wrong paradigm and you're a doctor and you were headed in that direction. So it's self-given and it is also self-take-awayeth, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's exa- exactly right. Well said. But I cannot cure my patients of their type 2 diabetes, but they can. They can. They can. And I try to empower them as much as I can. It's like, yeah, you, you have type 2 diabetes, but you understand that can be temporary. You can fix this. And most every patient is ecstatic. They're, they're motivated. They're, they love it that they, there's an out. There's a way out. I can fix this. I did it, yeah, but I didn't know I was doing it. And I tell people every day, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Mm-hmm. And type 2 diabetes is like that. They didn't know that that whole grain that the previous doctor told them to eat 22 servings a day of, they had no idea that was causing them to store fat first in their muscles, then in their liver, and finally in their pancreas, which led to insulin resistance, and then finally type 2 diabetes. That's the mechanism, by the way. If, if your doctor acts like he doesn't know where type 2 diabetes comes from, I just told you. So you can maybe help him out. But... All you have to do is reverse that. And it only takes an ounce or two of fat in the human pancreas to make your beta cells say, forget it, I'm done, I'm not making any more insulin. And more and more, and and Jason Fung touches on this, and I sure hope it catches on with other doctors, a lot of type 2 diabetics will do what we call burnout. And we we used to think that their beta cells in their pancreas stopped making insulin. And so now they're a type 1. Turns out that may not be true. So for all the type 2 diabetics out there who are currently on insulin, first of all, have your doctor check a C-peptide and an insulin. And if those are not zero, if they're three or above, then you are not a type 1 diabetic. You still make insulin. You need to get off that insulin immediately with the help of a good doctor. Who knows about nutrition, right? That's right. You need to find a good doctor to help you get off that insulin because, I mean, if we want to make laboratory animals fat, you know how we do it? We give them insulin. I mean, that's a known thing. Insulin makes you gain weight. There's no argument with that. And so if you're given a type 2 diabetic who's probably already overweight anyway, and insulin resistant, now you hear that, resistant to insulin, so you have to give them a lot, you're just making them gain more weight, which is making everything worse. You're giving them the very thing that's going to make their diabetes worse. Yeah, I've never seen a type 2 diabetic who was overweight get on insulin and then lose weight. Never. No, and it's impossible. And then we'll we'll tell them, look, dude, you got to join the gym. You got to cut back on your, you got to have a calorie deficit so you can lose this weight. And then we give them insulin, and and then we're we guilt trip them because they didn't lose weight. And it's it's the doctor's fault that they're not losing weight, not the patient's fault. And so if you're type two and your C peptide is elevated, that means you still make insulin. And so you need to either educate your doctor and treat him, or you need to find a new doctor and get off the insulin. And then as you fix your diet, which is moved towards a keto, paleo, primal, ancestral, the fat's going to leave your pancreas first. And it's a very likely that if, even if it stopped making insulin, it'll start making it again. But if it was still making insulin, which is the case with most type 2 diabetics, your insulin will start to work again at the receptor site and your A1C will start to come down and you'll start to lose weight and everything will start to move in the right direction. That's possible. It's probable, but you just have to change your diet to make it happen. Right. 
Let's talk about uh, your book. I, uh, aside from, you know, we won't go through every example, but give us a few ones. I mean, we, we've talked about thyroid so much on this podcast. So, I mean, people pretty much know what those myths are. They could, you know, look into that, <laughs> right. but we'll give them a break from, we'll the, give them a break from the thyroid today, but give us a couple other ones. We talked about the fat and, you know, nutrition and diabetes. What are some other random ones that we might go? Hmm. So there's a chapter about, um, milk in the book. And, you know, I mean, milk does a body good, milk, milk, milk. And I pretty much lay it out, one plus one is two, why milk's a bad idea. I still use dairy. I still eat cheese. I, I use heavy cream in my coffee sometimes. I use butter in my coffee. But I never drink liquid milk. And when I was growing up, I was a milk baby. When I played football, I would drink almost a gallon a day. No lie. And that's also back when my acne was terrible and my dandruff was terrible. And I don't know if it was dairy or wheat, and I don't care because I'm never having either again. But milk is not good for adult animals, first of all. And then milk from another species certainly isn't good for animals. So, and is I it the to, casein I, content in the milk that's the problem? Because it's not in the cream and the butter, and that's what the 65% of the population is like kind of effed with there? Is that casein Yeah, and I, it is. It, it's, the, it's the sugar and the, and the potentially inflammatory proteins. That's what causes ah. the, the problems with milk. But let's just think about it from a common sense standpoint. Why do mammals give their babies milk? Mammals have this huge brain. That's why we run the world. But And so we basically have to be born prematurely to get that brain through the birth canal before it gets too big. And so mammals have to have some way so that their babies, when they're first born, can grow and gain weight as quickly as possible. And what did nature give mammals to give their babies so that they would gain weight as fast as possible? Milk. And yeah, because breast milk is even 50% like saturated fat. So it's this, and in whales, right? You know, I mean, it's the same thing. They're fattening them up for the trip up, you know, the coast, and that's what they're feeding them. <laughs> they're fattening them up. That's what milk is for. And it's not the it's not the fat in milk that makes them fat. That's helping to myelinate the nerve sheets and to help the brain develop even faster. But the sugar in milk and the proteins in milk, that's what makes, and so, you know, a cow from birth to one year gains a thousand pounds. Uh, drinking nothing but cow milk. And so if you're trying to get healthy and lose weight, then you should drink cow milk? No. No, that's that's silly. So, yeah, and there's a chapter on milk. There's also a chapter on whole wheat. There's a chapter on the food pyramid and the my plate foolishness. And if you... <laughs> And then there's uh, uh, two chapters, I think, on the cholesterol theory of disease and how the research was all fabricated and how we've all been taking Lipitor and Zocor for the last 20 years, and it's been doing absolutely nothing to lower our risk of heart attack or stroke. And that's, it's, all, it's been in the research forever, and it got so bad at, at one point that the big pharmaceutical houses would sponsor the research, and then if it didn't show a little benefit, they just wouldn't publish it. And the research is now being published and brought to light by people like Dr. Jason Fung, who are saying, look, here's the research. It proves it, that it, it didn't help at all. It actually increased mortality in other ways, the same way with insulin and type 2 diabetics. It, it increases mortality and morbidity. So why are doctors giving it? That Those are in the book. Um, what else? Yeah, no, I want to touch what on the milk. What else did you saw that caught your eye? 
Well, I'm, I just feel like it, the whole thing is so great because it's dispelling like subject by subject in a broken down way that you can completely, it's so palatable. And that's what people need because, you know, it's like people aren't scientists and doctors. And, you know, so I felt like you'd explain it and you explained everything in such a way where we can really wrap our heads around it. And also maybe another doctor can too. And isn't that the point, right? Hopefully some doctors will catch wind of this and start to go, ooh, I need to step it up here. Um, I want to go back to the milk thing for a second. So, you know, it's interesting because... So I can have a little heavy cream here and there. I don't have any like, quote, milk allergies. I've been tested. I'm not technically allergic to it, but I do get stuffy with different types of dairy. Um, but what I've noticed is if I go have like a latte with whole milk or just something with whole milk in it, it's almost like immediately I start burping. Immediately I start having like burpees and I get even stuffier than I would. So I'm wondering like, what is it about that? The difference between like heavy cream, maybe not doing that to me, but almost instantly it happening with uh, whole milk. And I just did a, a video on my YouTube channel not too long ago about this very subject, but milk's made of basically the three macros. It's It has milk sugar, which is lactose. It has the different proteins, which are whey and calcium and, and others. There are others in there that you don't commonly talk about, but those are the two big ones that most people have heard of before. And you have the milk fat. And so the worst of all on the dairy spectrum, the worst possible dairy you could put in your mouth is skim milk as far as health and nutrition go. Because all the fat's been removed, you have nothing but the sugar and the inflammatory proteins left. That's all skim milk is. And I read an article just the other day that back in the 40s, doctors used to recommend to people who were wanting to gain weight, drink skim milk. That used to be the recommendation back in the 40s. And so now we've completely flip-flopped, at least there for a while, but I think now we're waking up again. So if the, the And that's why cheese doesn't bother people nearly as much, L, and why heavy cream and why butter doesn't bother them is because let's t- take cheese, for example. You've exposed the milk to a microbe, and the microbe is basically eating all the sugar. That's how it got its ah. energy. And then the, it acted on the protein and bent the protein molecules. So they're not the same shape. They're a different shaped protein now. And so the, all the fat's still there because they don't eat the fat. They don't like that. And so when you eat a piece of cheese, you're getting the fat, and almost no sugar's left because the microbe ate all the, the sugar, for energy, and then the bent or warped or changed protein, so it's not nearly as inflammatory as the, the proteins floating around in the liquid milk. And the same goes for kefir. The same goes for yogurt. On average, they're much less inflammatory and much less um, uh, weight gainogenic yep. than liquid milk is because most of the sugar's gone unless the company added sugar back, which they try to do at every opportunity. And the, the protein has been acted on by the microbe to bend it or change it so that it's a different shaped protein. So it's less inflammatory. Interesting. Now, also, too, I've noticed in general, I don't eat a lot of cheese, but, you know, occasionally I will, uh, like once a month, I'll have like a little cheese and meat plate or something like that. And I've noticed that raw cheese, raw, unpasteurized, right, is feels like it gets processed better. Is there mm-hmm. validity to that? And is it preferable to eat unpasteurized raw cheeses? If you're an adult, we're not talking about giving it to a two-year-old. <laughs> yeah, probably. And I actually talk about the, the pasteurized versus raw milk debate in the book just a little bit. And I use the way of thinking, because you're right, I try to break this down so people can understand. Because if you just try to watch the news and read USA Today and read the studies, you're like, what? I'm totally confused. I don't even know what's going on here. 
So just because something is less bad, that doesn't make it good. Right. Okay. And so skim milk is the worst. And so you could say, well, okay, 2% milk, then that's less bad. Yes, that's right. But a lot of doctors will take less bad to mean good. So they'll say, okay, well, then you should drink 2%. No, wait, that's not what I said. It's just less bad. And so I think that raw, unpasteurized milk is probably a little less Less bad bad. Mm -hmm. than processed, pasteurized supermarket milk. But we have to go back to the original common sense thing we talked about. Why do mammals give their babies milk? So they'll gain weight as fast as possible. So even, I mean, you know, the cow's giving her baby, her calf, unprocessed, unpasteurized milk. And the cow still gains a thousand pounds in a year. Yeah, and by the way, I have a friend who, who's primal, and then got into the whole raw, raw milk thing and was totally like, "No, no, it's still primal." And we were like, "It's not really primal if you're doing it every day, though, because you wouldn't have run into that." <laughs> so, exactly. You know, but exactly but he, he right. was so kind of addicted to it anyway. And you know what? His HbA1c ended up becoming pre-diabetic, and we were like, "It's the milk you're drinking all day long. You're drinking raw milk, so you're just drinking. There's still sugars, milk sugars, and there's still carbs in there." Oh yeah, yeah tons. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. Raw, organic, unprocessed milk is still full of sugar. I'm sorry, but it is. That's the fact of the matter. And it's still full of casein and whey, which for some people are very inflammatory. And it's absolutely true that some people have developed a mild resistance, a way to get around the, the, the sugar and proteins in milk so they don't inflame them as much. But that doesn't mean that it's good for them. It just means it's less bad for them. Right. Yeah. And that distinction is important. I want to ask you about... Practicing in rural Tennessee. <laughs> okay. What would you like to know? I mean, so that's a, di- you know, so, well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, when you're in a big city, there's lots of medical institutions and hospitals and doctors and everything else, right? And I, I guess if you're in a rural setting, what are you, the only doctor for how many miles? Or is it, it's not that rural? <laughs> it's not that um, rural. We had, uh, we have two doctors and probably six nurse practitioners in our county. Uh, and then uh, my the only other doctor in town just retired. But when I first came here, I think we had four or five MDs in the county. And just one by one, they've slowly retired. And now we're, it's left with just me and then nurse practitioners all over the place. And so it's it's a challenge. Well, I was going to say, too, I mean, not, not that rural people, you know, living in rural areas don't have like the Internet and, you know, television. Because <laughs> they do and they can access, you know, lots of information. But... I'm assuming some rural people that aren't into this kind of subject and are just kind of following the old way simple living might look at you like you're crazy when you tell them about this new paradigm. I'd love to hear about some of the objections or, you know, uh, revelations of people just being blown away by this new advice. I'm sure it's just a shocker to some people. Oh, years ago, it was a it was an absolute shock, say three or four or five years ago. And I lost patience. They were like, that's ridiculous. I mean, I've just I just came from this. Well, I'll tell you uh, this story. So uh, everyone knows that if you have diverticulosis or diverticulitis, you shouldn't eat nuts and seeds and popcorn because it could flare it up. You probably even have a have heard that. It's and it's based on no research, no science. It's completely untrue. There's actually a huge study, huge study that was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, proving that it was utter baloney. It's not true at all. Not even a little bit. But yet I had a patient, it's probably been five or six years ago, and he, he had a flare of diverticulitis. And I said, you got to stop, you know, you got to stop the processed meat. You got to stop the smoking. You got to lose some weight. And so he's like, well, I just want to go see a gastroenterologist. So I sent him to Nashville, which is the nearest metropolitan town 
to me. And he came back and he was kind of haughty. He was kind of cocky with me a little bit. And I'm like, what's up? And he said, well, the, you know, the gastroenterologist I saw at this, you know, blankety blank, huge hospital said that I need to eat, stop eating seeds and nuts and popcorn and that processed meat and my smoking and my weight had nothing to do with it. And I was just like, uh, how do I, what do I even say? Okay, well, I stand corrected then. And so the guy, he really didn't have his only other choice for a doctor. He had to drive an hour to get to. So he would come back to me from, from time to time when he just had to. And so the next time he came back, I handed him a copy of this study and with some highlighted sections. And I'm like, you know, and he said, you know, doc, I want to tell you something. Uh, since I've seen you last and I've been following his advice, I've had three episodes of diverticulitis. And so I, I, I decided that I would just try your what you recommended, and I haven't had any flare-ups since. I've lost 20 pounds. I quit smoking, and I, I eat nuts and seeds every day. Sunflowers are my seed, and poppy seeds are my two favorites. And when I handed him the study, he was like, yeah, I figured out that you were right just by my own trial and error. He said, well, that guy's like – I said, yeah, he's one of the top in the state. I know. I don't even know how a stomach intestine specialist would tell you such a, an ignorant thing, but he did. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, we're not, an you and I aren't shocked. <laughs> you and I aren't shocked. <laughs> well, even I'm I mean, a little shocked at that because I mean, this guy really should know the human intestine. He should really know it in and out. And that's kind well, of, well, endocrinologists should really know the endocrine systems, but they that's don't. I mean, true. I know. That is true. <laughs> so that is true. I'm glad you brought this example up because I had a family member who had diverticulitis or was in there. They were so afraid of raspberries and this and that and the other. Now at the time they were bloated, total carb dependent. Got them super primal. They lost, I mean, they look like Mark Sisson at this point. And mm -hmm. they said what you said. They were like, I think that advice was bullshit. Yep. They're like, absolutely. it wasn't, it wasn't that it was the state of my body. Right. Right. Like it wasn't the seeds and the nuts. And, and so, cause the people get it and then they go, oh, okay, well then I guess I just stay away from these foods for life. You're like, no, no, that should be a red flag right there. Right. Yeah. Avoid natural foods. Right. Anytime a doctor tells you to avoid <laughs> something natural like nuts, seeds, the sun, uh, you know, mountain spring water, you sh uh, that should be a red flag. You should say, wait a minute. What? I should avoid what? And then you need to start thinking because that guy may not be helping. Right. But the, even even goes a step further, L, because think about it. This wasn't unknown to allopathic medicine. Like, you know, you're saying he, he just didn't know when he figured it out by trial and error. But this study was published in JAMA. Every doctor should know, every doctor should know that nuts, seeds, and popcorn do not increase the risk of diverticulitis. It's actually protective. This study was in JAMA, the journal of the American Medical Association. So any doctor that does, doesn't know that should literally be taken out behind the hospital and beat to death. Because not only do you not understand the natural common sense of telling that it's idiotic to tell somebody not to eat seeds and nuts because that's what we're made to eat. But then also there's this huge study that was done by your peers and colleagues and superiors that you didn't bother to read. So how do you even want to call yourself a gastroenterologist if you don't know this information?
Right. Well, and you can tell I get a little heated about this because it kind of takes no, me. No, I do too. Because you know what? Look, there's there's allergy doctors out there too. People go in and get shots, and they don't go, "Hey, what's your diet?" Again, back to nutrition and any doctor knowing about that, right? You know, for example, I was out to dinner at a Korean restaurant with a friend recently, who I am convinced 100% has an issue with gluten. I've seen them eat it and then get stuffy and can't breathe like really badly right afterwards. So, anyway, we're we're at this Korean restaurant, and apparently they sell like a barley tea, and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> You know, I was like, nah. <laughs> and we sat there and we didn't, we didn't eat much that could have affected him. Although there were probably some soy sauce and something, but he drank this barley tea. And again, it was like this, it was an onslaught. It was like a, his just, it, he couldn't even breathe. He was just, it was like this disaster. And I said, you just drank gluten. Like that's, it, it, you've got to get this tested. Like pure gluten. But the yeah. thing is, is that <laughs> the idea is, well, every time that happens, even if you're willing to put up with the stuffy nose for that, Again, it's like you think you're getting away with it because you go, okay, well, this episode's going to be over in a couple hours or by tomorrow, but you've still just absolutely thrown darts at your body. Exactly. Well, here's and here's the common sense way to think about that. If it inflamed that part of your body, what? why do you think it didn't inflame everything else as well? And that's yeah, that's with the allergies. Yeah, that, that's another pet peeve of mine. It's like, okay, so you went out and you got this runny nose and this inflammation and I know that he didn't say anything about your diet, but, you know, your nose and, and all the internal linings are made of what you've eaten. Do you not think that maybe that mattered as well? And it's really a hard sell for people with chronic allergies because they just know that it's the damn ragweed or it's the boxwood tree or it's the, the dog dander or whatever the test showed. But what they don't understand is their immune system is already pr- primed and ready. And all it takes is one piece of pollen from that tree, and that's another thing I used to have, and I've, from personal experience, I've learned this. You could just say something about, let's go to the barn and, and, and pitchfork some hay, and I would sneeze and be stopped up for three days. We didn't have to go. You just had to say it. That's how bad my allergies Psychosomatic, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my allergies were terrible. I always had a runny nose. I was always clearing my throat. And it wasn't, and I, I went to the allergist. I got tested when I was a teenager. It was ragweed. It was dog dander. It was, I don't know, cottonwood tree pollen, all this crap. And I'm thinking, okay, so I, a human being who lives on this planet, am allergic to things that grow on this planet. How does that make any common sense at all? But I was just a kid, so I couldn't put everything together. But now looking back, I know if I had stopped drinking that gallon of milk a day that, was, that had the inflammatory protein that had my immune system half inflamed anyway, then I could go and live in the barn. And now, like, I maybe sneeze once a month now. And back then, I sneezed 25 times a day, every day, every week, every month, every year. I was always allergic, always. And now I'm never allergic. And there's nothing that has changed except my diet. Right, which has helped your immune system, right, get stronger and stronger, and it's not in a weak right. point. And so my immune Right. It's not right on the edge. And so the least little thing tips it over and I'm having allergic symptoms either in my stomach or my nose or my sinuses or wherever. If your diet is right, your immune system is calm and relaxed and it doesn't freak out about every little piece of pollen. Right. No, it's so well said. Such a great way to put it and wrap our heads around this and hearing it from a doctor again, you know, and that's the funny thing, right? Because I always say, don't just listen to a guy because he's got his MD, you know, but we also still have that where we're like, well, if you've got a doctor that's willing to do the work and is going to the extra ends beyond your training, like you are and some others, then that's when you should listen to still always follow your gut, right? And still do research. Yes, absolutely. And I, 
I mentioned that in the book. I don't want you to blindly believe anything I say. I want you to Google it. I want you to go to PubMed.gov. I want you to look it up. I think it's really great, your book, to shed light on uh, something I always try to push too, which is stepping up, take control, learn about some of these things, look into it, get people to start to really critically analyze some of this stuff. You don't have to have an MD to logically be able to look at some things, right? That's exactly right. And more and more these days, and I don't know if you've heard of Dr. William Davis, he's a cardiologist. He actually has a book out now called Undoctored, where he basically said, he goes a step further than me. He says, fire your doctor and do it yourself. And with the with the internet and with- I like with, him. <laughs> no. Yeah, already you like him, right? And with PubMed, that's so much easier and, and more possible these days. But with some of these things, like the type 2 diabetic on insulin, you don't do that. Please don't do that yourself. Please find a doctor to help you do that because you could you could hurt yourself. It, it, you know, there's so many of these conditions that it, it makes me nervous for them to try to be undoctored and just do it completely themselves. But as you know very well, sometimes you do just have to do it yourself. Yeah, and sometimes it works. And I'm not opposed <laughs> to that, but I, I, I think that it's good for people to have a trusted advisor who can give them, and, and and Jimmy Moore said it very well. He said, you know, look at your doctor as a consultant. Just like if you consulted somebody about your business or a mechanic about your car, you're not going to just blindly take their advice. You're going to take it into consideration based also on the totality of your human experience and what you've seen, and then make a decision. And that's the same exact way you should treat your doctor. Take his advice and listen to it and take notes, but then you're going to say, hmm, do I want to apply that to my life or not? Right. And I think I just want to impress too upon everybody. Anytime any doctor says you need surgery or something removed or diagnoses you, go get a couple more opinions, okay? Right? Get, yep. get a few yep. more. Yep. Good, good rule of thumb. If any doctor advises you to do something that you can't take back, get a second opinion. Absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Absolutely. regretful surgeries I've heard from many people who are crying now, realizing that they never needed that hysterectomy or they never needed this thyroid removal or whatever it was, that there could have been another way, there could have been another option. And I agree with you. Yeah, if there's something you can't undo, there you go. <laughs> yeah, then get a second opinion and maybe even a third and and go outside of that practice because I've seen so many people have a surgeon say, yeah, you need you need to have whatever surgery, and then they just go to another doctor, but it's another doctor in the same practice. And the 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 and I talk about the laws of human nature in the book. Think about that. That's like going, you know, you went and saw Vinny the mechanic, and he said you needed a new motor, and you go see his cousin Vince, and he says, oh yes, you also need a new motor. Well, yeah. Because they both stand to gain from that. And it's not that they're dishonest. It's not that there's a conspiracy. It's just human nature. That's human nature. We're, we, we're going to do that. In, and oftentimes we do it unconsciously. You, and, you know, you can't even think that he did that on purpose. It's just human nature to do that. So go outside that practice. Go somewhere else. Go to another city for a second opinion. And perhaps even don't tell them what the first doctor said. Because you don't want to poison the well. Yeah, you want you want a, a, a an un, unbiased second opinion. That's what you want. So don't go to the same practice and don't tell them what the first doctor said. Then you get real information that you can use to ultimately make the decision yourself. Very good point about not telling the second opinion about the first opinion. Go in fresh with new eyes on it without anything being poss possibly tainted or having them even be erring on that side of that, right? To get a f un unfiltered, yeah.
because you've probably done this enough to know it, but if you go to a doctor and say, well, I saw Dr. McGillicuddy and he said this, and I think that's crap. What do you think, doctor? You've already po- that, you've poisoned that well. He already has made decisions and judgments about you, uh, whether justified or not. He's already, he's already sized you up just from that one sentence alone. And so that's not how you approach your, your second opinion. And that's probably something I should write about or do a YouTube about because that's very important. You'll bias him. You'll kick his laws of human nature in, and he'll already be spooky about you and skittish about you just from that one sentence right, alone. Right, right, exactly. And, and, and may err on the side of too careful in an opinion where otherwise they might be more unbridled creatively as a doctor to look at something else. I, I'm with you on that, that you cannot deny these factors. It's not just clear-cut black and white medicine and organic chemistry, right? There are a lot of other things that factor in here. Um, all of that stuff is riding around in a human brain that's attached to a human heart that's wrapped up in a human ego. And so you have to take all of those things into consideration or you'll get the wrong advice. Love it. This has been so great. I want to wrap it up and we're going to post how we can connect with you uh, on our show notes. So everyone will have the direct links there. But how, do you work with other patients from out of state at all? Um, do yeah, you... more and more I'm getting patients from out of town, out of state. And uh, I've actually, uh, now that I've been doing the YouTube and the Facebook pretty heavily, I'm getting people from out of the country who are really trying to pick my brain for, you know, what should I do? What should I take or not take? Great. So we can, so someone out there can actually, what, send you some labs and have, what, a Skype call with you or or talk with you directly and have an appointment? Yeah, I'm actually using a a service called evisit.com where I can do, and if, if you've never been my patient in, in the office before, then there can be no doctor-patient relationship between us. But I can give you medical coaching advice, <clears throat> and so I do that. So tell us about the YouTube videos. That's great. And, I mean, obviously you're, you're what, doing one a week, or would you just post it on topics, things that come up in practice? Well, as you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this stuff. And so for <laughs> since, since I started the, the YouTube uh, channel in earnest. I'm doing at least one video a day, and I, I don't. I, at least every other day, there's going to be a new video, and so yeah, I'm loving that because I'm able to help so many people that I could never reach if I just sat in my office all day. Um, th- and we're also grateful too for doing that. Where can we find your book? We can get it on Amazon. Um, can, can we get it directly from your website? And of course, we'll post the show notes. But it's called "Lies My Doctor Told Me," and you can go to Amazon to get that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just going to let it be on Amazon, and I'm working on getting um, a, an ebook out, and I'm working on getting an Audible version, and then I'm also I've had multiple people from <clears throat> Costa Rica. And other places in Central and South America say, hey, where's the Spanish version? So I'm also working on that. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We're going to have to have you back on because these are great conversations. And honestly, when people do hear it from a doctor who's informed, who's excited about your work still, who's, I mean, and also, isn't this whole paradigm more fun looking into new things versus just like practicing something you learned 30 years ago? Those guys must be bored as F over there, like those doctors, right? Oh. Yeah, well, yeah, and I actually I talk about that in the book as well. It's just their life is miserable because half of them are in a career. And, you know, the whole thing about going to medical school is unless you had a doctor in your family, you have no freaking idea of what it even means to be a doctor on a daily basis. And so all of us dreaming of medical school and being a doctor, we were dreaming about something that we had no idea what it actually was. 
And that sounds a little crazy on its face. But then when you get into practice, it's not really easy to tell, say, tell your family, hey, you know that career I've been training for for the last 14 years? I don't want to do that anymore. They're not going to take that very well. So you're kind of stuck. And so if you're not thinking and learning and, and exploring in medicine, you're just bored and stuck in a rut and your life has to be kind of miserable because you're right i love coming to work every day and i love doing the youtube videos and i love doing stuff like we're doing right now because there's no telling out there who will help and whose life we could change just by standing up and and making a difference and i I love it no and it's so great that you're doing those youtube videos for free as well, you know, because there's so much great free information to share, these podcasts, etc. There's there's no reason for anyone to get a good handle on something they're struggling from, whether that be mental or physical, right? So in this day and age, you know, if more doctors could just do that, you're offering a lot of people hope and a, a positive direction and things they need to look out for. So thank you so much. We'll have to have you on again, Dr. Ken Berry. And um, we will thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a blast. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.